Brilliant. Some sad news. Um, I had the honour to be with uh, Lyle Olson um, uh, on Saturday morning as he uh, passed into the kingdom of God. Many of you may know Lyle. He comes to Willow One Prayer. He goes to Pursuit School. He was there on uh, Tuesday night. just a 63-year-old gentleman that loves to pray and comes to men's prayer and, um, and sadly had a stroke and, um, and uh, on Saturday morning with the family and myself, we were there uh, to usher him into the presence of the kingdom of God. Do pray um, for Lorna and uh, the family at this time and ask that God will bless them. Many of you probably know Lorna. She uh, teaches at the Christian school here in town. Kelowna Christian School, and um, pray that God will be with them and bless them. Uh, We've been talking about idols, and we've been uh, talking about the idols of our life that oppose the worship within who we are. Now, of course, last week I spoke about the subject that uh, I told you that if I announced, then you wouldn't turn up. But thankfully, a lot of you turned up, perhaps even more. Than, um, than have turned up this morning. That is a long weekend, so well done. Um, but uh, I spoke about greed and spoke about money and spoke about the idol of money within our lives and how we approach our money and how we look at this and how greed is something that none of us ever feel that we struggle with or battle with. And as I said last week, I rarely, in 30 years of pastoral ministry, have had a moment when somebody's come into my office and said they feel and confess that they're struggling with greed. Uh, lots of uh, people struggling with lust, and lots of people struggling with other issues, but rarely, if ever, have I had anybody sit there and say, you know, I'm making this purchase, I'm doing this, I'm handing this, and I wonder whether I'm struggling with greed here. And we unpack that as an idol and the role of money in our lives, as an idol, as something that we trust, and serving uh, our two masters, and dethroning uh, money from, uh, as an idol within our lives as the most important thing. An idol is something we love, an idol is something we trust, and an idol is something that we obey. So do we love it? Do we trust it? And if it was taken away, would it take away our faith in life? Is it the most important thing in our lives? And is it something we obey? In other words, that idol really sets the tone for our feeling of who we are as an individual and gives us our identity. And of course, the point is this, that our identity is in, the, in Christ Jesus. And our identity comes through knowing Christ within our lives and as a reality. And so, um, so as we think about this, let's, uh, I want to jump to the first image because we won't do the uh, whole reading and we'll start there. But for the first thing, uh, Madonna. Now I want to talk about success. And you might say, gosh, I haven't seen her since the 90s. Madonna, does she still exist? She does indeed. Uh, But Madonna, Madonna's very interesting that as I begin this journey about success, she said something about her own success. 
Arguably, she was one of the most successful artists of the 80s and the 90s. She was um, a massive recording artist, a massive hit in the world, and a formidable force. And of course, for much that she stood for, we struggle with a lot of, of course, her, 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 her morals and her standards. But she said something quite telling and quite moving in an interview recently. She said that, that she always realized that in the pursuit of success, she had an iron will. She would go after something from a small town in the Midwest. She would chase this completely. And she had an iron will that she would achieve what she set out to achieve. And she would be utterly and completely successful. But you know, um, Madonna, of course, also said... She said, I wanted to become somebody. I wanted to become somebody. And she said this word in a recent interview, that when I became somebody, I really still felt like nobody. And the more I became somebody, the more I struggled with feeling like nobody. And that is the great paradox of success, that we become somebody, and it's been well documented, but when we become somebody, somehow within our lives, we still feel like we are nobody. This gentleman, Harold Abrahams, you may know him from the Olympics. Of course, he's the other guy in Chariots of Fire. He also made this statement that when he looked at his life and all that he did, even though he was the most successful 100 meters athlete at the time at the 1920s Olympics, he said as he looked down the track, he felt as if he utterly achieved nothing. He he couldn't come to terms. He was never content in his journey. And he scoffed. He said, contentment. I have never felt contentment in my life. Even when I'm running down that, I'm chasing after something and I cannot find contentment within my life. Now, how do we explain this? Well, you may not know of this top executive coach, Mary Bell, but she... Uh, coaches the most successful people in the world. And she writes about this process of coaching the most top executives in the world. She says the truth is that many of them these days are not addicted to alcohol. They live pretty clean lives. They are effective. But what they've become addicted to is addicted to being successful. Addicted to to the buzz of the deal. Addicted to the sale. Addicted to that moment of running the project and getting the project to that moment of elation and euphoria at that moment within, within their lives. And as she coaches them, she goes on to say that the reality is this. That achievement is from external. So they gain their self-esteem and they gain their, their 
self-worth from the events that they have created within their lives and they've become addicted to success within their lives and yet the outward addiction never meets the inward of self-worth, of feeling of that self-value and of that self-esteem within their lives. And this is the danger of the idol of being most successful is that you're looking for an answer deep within yourself that this success will make you somebody, but like Madonna said, I became somebody, but I still felt like I was nobody. You see, it's the idolatry of success that is a problem in people's lives. The idolatry of being successful within our society, it has become this God that we're chasing after to get to the top, to be number one. And when we get to the top, when we become number one, then we will be utterly and completely successful in our lives. Arguably, the most successful female tennis player of all history, Chris Everett. She, when interviewed about her retirement, she said, I am utterly and completely petrified. You see, my whole identity for my life, she said, is playing this game of tennis. I love it, incredibly being honest about herself. She said, I love it so much that I adore the applause. That when I'm there, my identity is clear and my identity is there. I'm an addict, she said. I'm an addict to success. I'm an addict to being number one. I want to be that somebody in the, in, in, the, in the world. I want to be, but I'm addicted to this. And the very thought of retirement petrifies me because I really do not know who I am and who I will become if I am not this number one success in my life. I don't know about you, but there is a danger that in our culture, we create a culture of being, of competition. The author and educator, David Brooks, wrote this. He said, the danger is with our success culture is that there has become an almost unholy alliance between schools and families and success has become the objective that everybody must become utterly successful. But the danger is, is that the home in North America, has become a pressure cooker around being successful. And the danger is that, and they have documented this, that so many young adults are choosing careers where they will be successful, where they will gain the best income, where they will gain so much for themselves in these professions of law and finance and so on and what they can get. But they discover very quickly that they're not satisfied in that because it's all about what they can give rather than what discovering the joy of working for others and blessing others and knowing that within their lives. A dog-eat-dog 
culture is being created whereby we have to be number one, whereby we have to be successful, whereby this success has become an idol and even the smallest of children are feeling the pressure and as one author put it, the home that was once a haven of rest and peace has now become a place where it's success, success, success. And so many young professionals are burning out because they find when they get there that they're empty within their lives. So that's a little commentary at times on our culture. And I want to remind you of a story in the Bible of one of the most successful men. His name was Naaman and he was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram and he was a valiant soldier. But he had leprosy. He had leprosy. And the story of Nahum goes like this. He was a a man of particular success. He was a man who had everything. You see, he was a man that possessed, he was the commander of the army. He was the prime minister of what we would now call Syria. He was a man that was, was the kind of designer life. He was a well-decorated soldier. He was rich. He was incredible. He, he was a great commander. He had gone on great exploits and he had succeeded in life. And then right at the end of the text it says, but he had leprosy. I think that he is a parable on life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, that our Our desire for success and to be an insider and in the inner circle is something that is within each one of us that we want to be successful, that we want to make it. And yet when we get there, we don't feel like an insider. We actually feel like an outsider. And he was a man with wealth. He was a commander. He was a field marshal. He was a decorated soldier. He was a man that had money and he had everything. But what happened to him? It simply says, but he had leprosy. In other words, he was an outsider. His body was rotting. His, his, his life was struggling because of this disease in the ancient world. And although he was utterly successful, he had a leprosy. It would have been difficult. And we look to be accepted in the country club maybe, or that particular golf club. We want to be an insider. And there's something within each one of us that we're searching to be this insider. But somehow now gives us a, a parable in Scripture that we have everything, but we still feel like an outsider. Do you feel like that at times? Do you feel like... You've got everything you need, but inside of yourself, you feel like not an insider, you feel like an outsider. And of course, the story goes on now. A a band 
of Aram's had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the young servant girl comes and says to her mistress, if only my master will go and find the prophet Elisha. If only he will go and find him at this time. So he goes to look for him and we see that he goes, but he's looking in the wrong place. Where does he go? Instead of going to Elisha, the scripture teaches us, he goes to, to the king of Israel. And how does he go to the king of Israel from Syria? He takes letters of recommendation. He takes silver and gold. He takes all of what he has. And as he goes there, he arrives at the king of Israel and says, I am here. Now I hear there's a cure and I've got everything I need. Now will you do the business, let's do the deal, let's sort it out. Here's the letter, here's the silver, here's all that I need. Now, will you solve the problem? The king of Israel tears his clothes and thinks, what are you doing here? Can I, can I help you? Can I heal your leprosy? Surely not. See what Naaman is doing? He's doing what all the ancient people thought, that you can make a deal with God. He was the most successful man, but he thought, I'll tell you what, and the ancient world believes this. They believed that if you were successful, they believed that if you were successful, that it equaled blessing and it equaled prosperity. And you had to do a deal with the gods. And when you deal a deal with the gods, God will come down and do something remarkable. He was a successful man wanting to do a deal with the God of Israel so that he could get rid of his leprosy. And he's a fine man. He's a bright man. He's a name dropper. But you can't do a deal with the God of Israel. No matter who successful you are, no matter how amazing you are, you cannot do a deal with the God of Israel. And what Naaman wanted to do, he thought he could tame the God of Israel. And the truth is this, you cannot tame the God of Israel. Why can't you tame the God of Israel? Because he's untamable. He's a wild God. He thought that he could put the God of Israel in his debt, if only he had enough silver, if only he had enough letters, if only he had enough recommendations, then, 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 then everything would be fine. Listen, you don't put the God of Israel in debt to you. He is a God of grace and he chooses to show his grace. You see, he wanted a personal transaction with this God for him because he was a very special, successful person. But you can't have that with this God because he deals with all people and welcomes all people. 
he was expecting something great. He was expecting some great thing. And when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Nahum went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And he knocked on the door. But Elisha didn't come to the door. He sent a servant. This shocked Nahum. He looked, it shocked him twice. First of all, he sent a servant to the door. And secondly, he was expecting a great magical moment. He was expecting the prophet to come out. He was expecting him to, to do a spectacular rock opera. He was expecting a U2 Concert. He was expecting something amazing. And what does the prophet say to him through the servant? Go down to the river, dip yourself down seven times, you'll get out and you'll be healed. Hang about, it doesn't work like this. This is ridiculous. This is foolish. This is simplistic. I'm the most successful man in the world. I've got the silver. I've got the gold. I've got the letters of recommendation. And you won't even meet with me. And you tell me to go down to the river. Doesn't sit. Syria have great rivers. We have magnificent rivers, not this ridiculous Jordan. And he goes off in anger. Why? Because of his pride and his ego and his arrogance. And we believe a lie. And that lie is that if we've got the silver, if we've got the letters of recommendation, if we're the top of our game and we are successful and we are number one, then we can get what we want. And it is a lie because the God of gods and the King of kings is not looking for our silver and our gold and our letters of recommendation. He is looking for humility that says, I will go and do a foolish thing and I will get in the river and I will dunk myself seven times because that is what God tells me to do. That's what God. And sometimes we forget this because we become so driven by our success when we forget that God is not impressed with our success. He's impressed with our heart. How is your heart? He's impressed with our childlike faith. He's impressed with our simplicity. He's impressed with our prayer life. He's impressed with the way that we give to others. He's impressed with our kindness. He's impressed with our love. That's what impresses the God of heaven. You may have chariots, but it's time to get off the chariot and get in the simple river and to say, I bathe, I dip myself. And that's humbling. That's humbling. He was expecting something great, but it was something simple. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleaned. But Naaman went away angry 
and thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, fireworks, his God, wave his hand over me and spot the cure of my leprosy. He moans, we have great rivers. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Have you noticed that egotistical, angry people who are pleased with their personal success can often get very enraged very quickly? <laughs> and he was enraged. He was, what are you doing? And the servant runs after him and says, come on. If he'd said to do something really hard like climb a mountain or do something, would you have not done it? Then do something simple. So he went and did something simple by going into the river. It's an amazing story. A successful man who had everything that needed a cure because of his leprosy went to the God of Israel. He went into the water. He was cured and he came out of the water. Amazing. But who is the most important person in this story? Is it Elisha? Who is the most important? It is the little suffering servant. The little suffering servant. This story would be nothing without the little suffering servant. This story is about a girl who was willing. We know the story about this girl. She had a family and an army came into her home. They destroyed her village. They took her and her family. And at best, they took her and her family and they split the family up. Undoubtedly, she would have been 12 or 14. Undoubtedly, because we know the history of the ancient world and, and slavery, she would have undoubtedly been raped. She would have been hurt. And where does she end up? Her family killed. She's a refugee with pain and agony. And she ends up where? In Field Marshal's Naaman's home. The man that had ordered the attack. The man that had burnt down her village. The man that had split up the family. The man that may have killed, been responsible for the murder of her father and her brothers. And now she is a slave girl in the second most important home in Syria. She's a suffering servant. But what does she do? She says to her mistress, if only my master would go and meet a man in Israel. You see, for many of us, I would think that she chose the way of grace and the way of forgiveness as a suffering servant and rather being bitter, rather than being angry, rather than being revengeful, revengeful rather than saying, I hope he rots, I hope he dies of his leprosy, I hope his leg drops off, I don't want to see him stink, I want to see him die, I can't stand him, oh, I'm not going to tell him about a life 
Elisha. They, he wrecked my life. He ruined who I am. Where's my mother, my family? She is suffering and yet rather than giving in to anger and forgiveness and bitterness, she chooses to show grace at the cost of who she is and says, Go and find this man and you may find healing. See, that is true success. It's not the success of the silver or the chariots. It's the success of the suffering servant who is willing to say, I'm not going to give in to bitterness and anger. I'm going to point the right way of salvation and hope and forgiveness. You see, one thing I know about forgiveness is that forgiveness costs us. Forgiveness hurts. When somebody forgives, it always has a massive cost. It hurts. And often we forget this. And it would have hurt her to have forgiven. It would have demanded a lot of emotional strength and she would have felt that but she chose to take the higher road than the road of unforgiveness and bitterness and to forgive hurts for a moment and there's always a servant that hurts to bring peace and forgiveness and when you and I choose to forgive it hurts for a moment but it's better to hurt than for a moment than it is to ruin your whole life with bitterness and anger. Because that's what unforgiveness does. And she's the most successful, the most beautiful, the most amazing little girl in this story because she chooses to walk the way of a little suffering servant. Why? Because we serve the great suffering servant. He came down. He was captured by men. He was taken by Pontius Pilate. He was betrayed by the religious elite. He was thrown into a prison. He became a captive of others. He was whipped and he was abused. And you notice where there's often selfish success, there is abuse. We've seen this on the news all the time at the moment. Most successful people have been shown in so many areas of their inconsistency and their abuse. And then he was taken out on a hill, he was nailed to a cross, and he died as the suffering servant so that we may walk into a river of God's forgiveness. We may be dipped in the forgiveness of Christ and the blood of Jesus. We may come up and we may know true forgiveness and the leprosy of our hearts, of feeling an outsider, of never feeling content, of never feeling and understanding our identity, of not knowing our purpose on life, of searching for success but never finding it. Suddenly, when you meet the great servant, you find the meaning of success. Ladies and gentlemen, the meaning of success is meeting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. That's the meaning of success. 
when you make success your idol, it will all fall down. But when you make Jesus your point of worship, that's how you build your life. It's the end of self. This is what this is about. Because the pursuit for making success an idol is putting oneself first. But what Jesus is looking for from us is that we end of ourself. We give up ourselves and we let God work. We give up our own and we say, Lord, come and fill me and meet with me. So he gave up himself. He humbled himself. He gave up his ego. He got off his chariot. He left his silver. I mean, Elijah didn't didn't even want his silver. And it was a lot of silver, actually. He didn't even want all of this. He just wanted him to understand that humility and servanthood and becoming a fool saying, and for so many people, the very idea of bowing your knee to Jesus is the most foolish idea, as if it will get rid of things in your life. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, he became clean like that of a young boy. Now, wouldn't you like to bottle that? Clinique, nothing on this. Wouldn't you like that? If I could sell that out the front, I'd be pretty successful. (laughs) A young boy. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is No God in all the world except in Israel. How was that statement possible of a prime minister of Syria being converted to the God of Israel? How is this possible? It's possible because of a servant girl who did not live in bitterness but gave in grace and love and forgiveness. It is the act of the servant girl that changed a prime minister's life. So who is the most successful person in the story? It is the one who forgives. It is the one who shows the way. It's the one who speaks up for truth. It's the one who is the slave girl, the servant, who shows the greatest way to live your life. So when I look at Madonna, Harold Abrams, Chris Everett, when I read all the stories, what would we say to those people? When you become somebody, you still feel like nobody. You'd say, follow the suffering servant. Because he will meet the deepest needs of your leprosy in your life. 
Maybe you're a Christian and you battle with feeling like an outsider even though you're an insider. And maybe you need to ask the Lord, why do I feel this sense in my heart? Why do I feel this pain? Why do I feel like an outsider when if you're in Christ, our hearts should be healed. We should know that we're loved. We should know our identity. We should know that the applause is not what it's about. It's about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Is there an idol of success that needs to be toppled in your life? Are you more... And is it time to walk into the river of Jordan and to dip yourself? Let's pray together. Just for a moment, ask the Lord the question. And listen for a moment. Do I, have I made an idol of my success? Do I pride myself in my chariots and my silver and my letters of recommendation? And are you willing to walk into the river and do the foolish thing? Just as we think about that, we'll go to that verse. I want to remind you of that verse in Corinthians. that said that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Surely the servant girl was the weakest of things. And the foolish and the despised things to shame the wise. Even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. I'm so happy that in my life I felt foolish at times, and I felt weak. And in my weakness, the Lord has used my weakness. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us, we will depose our idol of success for the worship of Jesus. And that true success is knowing Christ. Maybe right now you're sat here and you're getting right with God you want to get right with God or you'd like to become a Christian. And I'd love to pray with you at the end of the service. Maybe you're getting right with God now because you've realised you've been worshipping in the wrong place. If that's you, for a moment, just raise your hand. By raising your hand, you're saying, Pastor Phil, I'm getting right with God this morning. I give my life to Christ. Is anybody to slip your hand up? Yes. God bless you. Thank you. God bless. Anybody else? Anybody in the balcony? Getting right with God this morning. Father, I pray that for each one of us we may get right with you. 
and know the true journey is only found in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Use this song as a way of responding to the Lord.